Jazz, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Listeners, the subject of this week's two-part episode once remarked the following, quote, It's the dogma of the last century that you throw away the past. It's like telling a scientist to throw his laboratory away. If you throw it away, you get rid of all of the technique. You have to go back to the past. And as fashion historians, this quote sets our hearts a pitter-patter because this is exactly what we endeavor to do with all of you twice a week here on Dressed. Yes, we certainly do. And people ask us all the time when they find out that we're podcasters what our show is about. And yes, it's about clothing, but more broadly about how clothing can be a lens to explore all of these other themes and stories embedded in the human experience. I mean, that's why we do what we do because of the storytelling Mm -hmm. um, aspect of clothing and how examining fashion's past can illuminate our shared present. And this is something that our subject also explored in her work. And we are, of course, speaking about the recently departed Dame Vivian Westwood. Today, we continue our exploration of her 50-plus year career in fashion. In part one of this episode earlier this week, our guest, Alexander Fury, helped us unpack her early years and how an unconventional kindergarten teacher of the early 1960s became one of fashion's most individualistic voices. Along with her partner, Malcolm McLaren, Westwood helped define the aesthetics of the UK punk scene with the clothing offered at their now legendary incarnations of their boutique at 430 Kings Road in London, where they dealt out the defining DIY bricolage imperative that remains at the core of punk style today, even 40 years later. Ever the iconoclast and innovator, in today's episode, we turn our attention to the moment Vivian emerged from the underground to step into the bright lights of the high fashion runway, some of the constants that run through her work, as well as her many fashion firsts. We pick back up with Alexander Fury, fashion journalist, critic, collector, and Westwood aficionado to discuss her career, which is exquisitely and extensively detailed in his book, Vivian Westwood Catwalk. So without further ado, more with Alex on Vivian. So much of her work, there was like a constant thread that ran through it. But Mm. at the same time, she was one of those people, and you already mentioned putting the trainers or the sneakers down the runway. She was one of these people that was breaking new ground constantly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm hoping that we can talk about some of her constants and also some of her firsts. Um, I know that might seem like a little bit of a contradiction, but it actually makes perfect sense in the context of her work because she loved a good contradiction. And um, I think that one of the collections that I think is very emblematic of both the constants and firsts is the Witches Collection of 1983, which 40 years ago, 40, set the stage for both artist collaborations or collaborations between artists and fashion designers and also high fashion athleisure, which is the term we use now. Would you tell us a little bit about this collection? 
I, I mean, Witches, I think, is an extraordinary collection. It was actually incredibly commercially successful. Um, it took £200,000 worth of orders from Italy alone. And Witches was inspired in part by a book Vivian had read on pagan incest. And she collaborated with the New York artist Keith Haring to produce sort of... Um, hieroglyphics and graphics that were based around the this idea of kind of um pagan cultures but then obviously i think perhaps with him coming from new york there was a certain influence of kind of new york streetwear going back into that and it's actually interesting because that you know that's very much he's very much someone coming from malcolm mclaren's world because mclaren was always plugged into what was going on on the street Whereas Vivian, a lot of the time, was more interested in history and was more interested in, you know, um, uh, kind of technique and examining the past as opposed to what was happening at that very moment. But the collection has a really kind of fascinating sort of combination of streetwear, history, the contemporary, the past. And again, it's this kind of scramble of ideas. You know, there are hats that are based on Chico Marx. There are linings that are based on the bookends of old books that kind of marbled to look as if you cracked a book open and these really extraordinary tailored shapes um which you can subsequently see you know influencing everybody uh from ray caracubo through to john galliano in the early 2000s which are these kind of um peak shoulders with you know there's even a degree of deconstruction because she uses the horsehair lining that you would normally interline a jacket with to create these kind of sharp shoulders um, on the outside of the jackets. Um, it's, it, it is, you know, that whole period is incredibly rich that she, she's exploring all of these different ideas and, and techniques. The trainers have triple tongs. It's, it's really this idea of there are really no rules. But I think in that whole period, it's, it's something that she's doing all the time. And the other thing that's really extraordinary is, you know, she does that and then she throws it away and starts completely afresh, completely, you know, with a totally different collection. After she did that collection, she had all of the screen prints by Keith Haring and they were under her bed in the council flat that she lived in for 20 years. And she rediscovered them years later and it was after Keith Haring's death. So they'd obviously become incredibly valuable. But, you know, for Vivian, it, was, it wasn't something she was going to look at again. And as you said, with the contradiction, you know, less than 10 years later, she was saying how sportswear was kind of sloppy mediocrity and it was you know it was the the worst invention the worst thing anyone could wear people should be exercising their brains and not their body and that she wasn't interested but you know the collection after witches was called hypnos and it was based based on the ancient greek olympics she doesn't just kind of jettison a look but she can jettison an entire ideology but when i was doing the book the thing that was really interesting is discovered that, that she returned to certain ideas again and again. And it's not just the things that you know, such as, for instance, the, the corset, which she first produced in 1987, and which they're still producing today in, you know, in the same line. When you look at it, you can see looking again and again at things like ancient Greek ketons um, and kind of, you know, togas and those kind of shapes. And she's doing that in the 70s when she's designing at Seditionary's then the 80s, you know, even later on, it's the simplicity of cutting it in silk jersey or cutting a toga in taffeta, which gives it a completely different sensibility, you know, a completely different relationship with the body. In the 1970s at, at Sex, they produced a, a T-shirt known as the Tits T-shirt, which was a, um, a 
T-shirt with a photographic print of female breasts. And it was said that it was best worn by a man. And for me, that relates immediately to her creating the cod piece for women. It's this idea of kind of surrealist movement of, of kind of, um, of sexual indicators between the genders. Obviously, kind of her fascination with English tailoring is something that kind of bubbles up again and again. Um, her love of the 18th century. You know, it's interesting because you see all of these things, you can see them kind of emerging and kind of evolving, being used in different ways. I mean, the corset itself, she did for Buffalo, there was a very famous outfit which had, uh, you know, with a sweatshirt with a bra worn on the outside. And it was the first time that anyone used the phrase underwear as outerwear, which was Malcolm McLaren. And then obviously the whole idea of then proposing a corset as outerwear is an evolution of that. So you do see that there are these kind of returns to different kind of aesthetic obsessions, to certain reference points, to specific garments um, again and again. And yeah, I was really struck by it in the book. I, I knew that she did it with certain garments, but I didn't realize kind of how, how uh, consistently she was referencing certain certain kind of inspirations. Yeah, I mean, and it's 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 almost like these little Westwoodisms that we always kind of knew that she did, but when you see them like sequentially, it reads very different, which is which is fascinating. Sometimes you look at things, and and like I said, if it's been you know, it might be the same inspiration, but rendered in a completely different way, or you know, the the simplicity of changing a fabric could completely reinterpret the, the same idea. I'm really glad that you brought up this outerwear as underwear concept. I found this so fascinating. And that particular collection, I think, um, where she was wearing the bra over the sweatshirt has an interesting source of inspiration. Would you tell us a little bit about unpacking that nostalgia of mud collection because yes. the title itself is actually a literary reference but the underwear as outerwear concept is something very different well this is i mean this is the collection that or, or this is one of those collections that has this kind of scramble of different ideas all kind of combined into one um so nostalgia of mud comes from the french phrase nostalgia de la boue which is this idea of um you know the, the, a kind of bourgeoisie instinct to search out the kind of gutter, to want to wallow in the kind of low life and local. But Westwood's interpretation of it was quite different. You know, it's literal, actually. Um, Nostalgia was the name of a collection, but it was also the name of a shop. She opened her second retail outlet at St. Christopher's Place in London, which you can visit today. The shop isn't there, but it's it's near Selfridges Department Store. So it's quite a sort of polished, tony um, fancy area of London. And Westwood opened this shop that looked like a building site. Uh, it was covered with kind of scaffolding and tarpaulin. When you went inside, it looked like an archaeological dig and it had a bubbling pool of mud at its centre, um, <laughs> which was powered by a fish tank uh, motor that kept breaking. All of the kind of mannequins were made out of reclaimed scraps. You know, and, and obviously the clothes have this kind of slightly post-apocalyptic feel to them. Um, and apparently everybody, all the other shops in St. Christopher's Place were so kind of incensed by this new addition that they were really determined to shut the place down because they hated how it looked and they hated the people that were going there. 
but the the specific outfit that we referenced, which is a brown satin kind of 1950s bullet bra, worn on the outside of a sweatshirt, um, the reference was actually to images of black women in, in South Africa. And it was the idea that in South Africa, um, at that time, Western lingerie was seen as a status symbol. So rather than wearing it under something, if you had a bra, you would wear it on the outside. You would want to kind of flaunt it. And so Westwood, you know, again, a little bit connected with Pyra in an act of kind of, uh, you know, plundering. She borrowed that from that culture and presented it on the catwalk. There were lots of other references within that. You know, there are references to kind of Appalachian culture, to South American culture, these big kind of heavy, bulky skirt shapes, which are drawn from kind of Peruvian costume. So really it's about combining all of these different references together. It's it's never, I you know, I don't think you can call it cultural appropriation because it's never about actually reproducing anything from one culture. If there is a pattern, it's mixed in with something else, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the colours in that collection were also amazing because Westwood was obsessed with dyeing fabrics. You know, she would dye fabrics kind of six or seven times to get the colour she wanted, which was usually brown at that point in time. You know, it was like dying and dying and dying to get things to be the perfect colour. A lot of the time, distressing things, stone washing, stuff like that. And, you know, these were really kind of intensive clothes. They were, again, as with the seditionary's clothes, they were expensive. And because of all these processes they went through, they weren't produced in enormous numbers. You know, there were lots of problems with manufacturing. Uh, there are kind of all these stories of manufacturers kind of phoning up and telling Vivian that, that she had to come and drag her rags out of their machines because they were clogging everything up. Um, you know, her flat was full of kind of acids and dyes and all these kind of actually horrendous things to be living around. Um, but at that point in time, everything she was producing was going through all of these processes. You know, they were being ripped, they were being distressed, they were being worn. So it was really about kind of uh, uh, about experimenting with with technique and with cloth. And, you know, it's it's interesting because later on she does that and she does it through, you know, different techniques, through techniques like tailoring. But there's also always this idea of, of, you know, Vivian always liked things that were a little bit undone, things that were a little bit wrong. One of my favourite stories is for a um, for a later collection, um, she produced a wedding dress that she was photographed in by Lord Snowden, which was shredded tulle. And it was worn on the catwalk by um, Sarah Stockbridge and she wore it with a chastity belt that her husband, Andreas Kronthaler's father, forged because his father was a blacksmith. And apparently after it was shot for Vogue, the dress was put in a, a trash bag um, because it was an enormous chill dress and that was an easy way for it to be transported. And someone threw it away because it looked like a bag of scraps. Um, oh, no. Which is distressingly something you hear a lot about in fashion. But I think it's very much, you know, with, with Vivian's work, there are, the, you know, a, there are these ideas of things being kind of, of uh, torn or shredded. There's always this kind of, there is slightly that idea of, of destroy coming from punk, um, you know, and apparent with, with that particular dress, it was actually, originally it was a perfect tulle dress. And when she first presented it, Vivian said, I think we need to rip this. It's too perfect. Well, you know, so speaking, going back to that whole idea of contradictions, right? So there's this punk chaos 
aspect of her brain, but then there's her also her love of tradition because she loved to use tweeds and tartans. They were a constant of her design lexicon. How did or do these rather, quote unquote, traditional textiles, what kind of meaning did they hold for her in terms of um, their repeated use year after year and collection after collection? I think when the Westwood label was formed after World's End, um, there was really this idea of Vivian retrenching herself in Englishness. There's actually kind of an interesting aside that in, um, I believe, 1984 or 1985, Giorgio Armani was actually going to support Vivian. Um, They were going to enter into a manufacturing deal and he was going to support her label, which is interesting because it's ahead of uh, Kering or LVMH or Richemont or any of those that, that, you know, Armani was going to support another talent. And then um, Armani's uh, romantic and business partner uh, passed away. And there was from Armani a retrenchment and he, you know, decided not to go ahead. Um, And that actually delayed Vivian presenting her mini crinny collection. She was supposed to be presenting it in Paris. And apparently she had to stand outside of the tent in Paris as people were arriving for the show and tell them it was cancelled. I know. Um, But what a lot of people said was after that, you know, she'd had clothes manufactured in Italy and she'd worked with Fiorucci in Italy. So she'd had a lot of experience in Italy at that point. And she then had to return to London. And really it was about her kind of re-embracing Britishness and wanting to move away from Italy and from Europe and and really go back to what she knew and what she loved. And she'd always loved uh, traditional English textiles. She used it at Seditionary. She made a lot of her kind of bondage suits out of, of, you know, really good quality British textiles. And you could still, you know, get kind of, original traditional tweeds like Harris tweed that were still woven in traditional fashions. And, you know, they were, a lot of these were things that she remembered from her childhood. So, you know, she remembered people wearing tweed and the kind of the messages around tweed, the fact that it it was hard wearing, it was long lasting, it stood for quality, and that it was inherently British. So when you look at her collections of the late 1980s, um, you know, these pagan collections, it was about colliding the ancient world with very traditional British elements. So I think using things like tweed were about her kind of, you know, messaging those ideas and also of her as a British designer. Um, Another thing that's interesting about Harris tweed is, you know, that the um, symbol of the Harris tweed authority is an orb. And then Vivian stole the orb and put a satin ring around it, which was the idea that that was the future. So it was this idea of taking the past, moving it into the future. And there was even apparently in the 1980s some discussion about whether the Harris Tweed Authority were going to sue Vivian for it, but ultimately they decided their association with a designer like Vivian was a good thing. And you can see all these elements coming together in in Mini Crinny, and especially in the collection that followed it, which was called Harris Tweed. And sometimes she called it her aristocratic or her royal collection. It was based in part on the dress of Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret when they were young children in the 1930s, which, you know, is is the kind of images Vivian would have been familiar with from her childhood. And it's very much about kind of using all of these kind of British elements. So you have kind of Scottish tweed, English wools. She worked with John Smedley, the, uh, the knitwear manufacturer. She was using Irish linens. 
And, you know, when you look at that collection, there were, obviously there are those kind of, you know, there are the very famous tweed crowns that are very overt references to, to the Queen's dress. Um, but also, you know, a lot of the shapes are based in English tailoring, um, you know, very traditional, quite sort of childlike tailoring. You know, it's, it's based in that tradition and very much going back to the 19th century. And I think it's something that Vivian felt people trusted and that people believed in. And, you know, there was a longevity to it. Um, and, you know, it was about her and her identity. And, and also it was something kind of unique. It was something that really marked her out away from everyone else. There's also a kind of contrariness, you know. Um, the people at John Smedley said that Vivian, whenever they worked with Vivian, she always chose the colours that they were just about to discontinue because no one had used them for 20 years. <laughs> you know, she always went against what everyone else was doing. And that's why she was so kind of incredibly influential because she wasn't following fashion. She was following her own path and that shaped fashion because she wasn't doing what anyone else was doing. Well, you know, also too, on the, on the note of the textiles, I was fascinated to learn in your book that some of the tartans were actually of her own design that she had them registered with the Scottish Register of Tartans, which is a whole thing. Um, we actually just did a two-part episode on Scottish dress, and we get into the history oh. of tartans um, not too long ago. So listeners, if you haven't heard those episodes, you can tune back into that if you haven't already. But one of the things that I simply adored was one of the tartans she designed is this really beautiful purple and white tartan, and it's on a black background, which she named Mac Barre. Yes. Which is, of course, a fashion history reference. She simply added the traditional Scottish Mac to the last name of one of fashion's great haute couturiers, Paul Paré. I got such a good giggle. I, like, literally logged on to the registry to look it up, to look the pattern up, um, it, which is fascinating. It just speaks again to her, her interest in fashion history. Couture especially becomes a fascination for her at the encouragement of her husband, Andreas. We haven't talked too much about him. You have mentioned him very briefly, but would you talk a little bit about their um, both personal and professional relationship and how did they meet? Absolutely. So Vivian um, actually returned to teaching in 1988 and she accepted a position as professor of fashion at the Academy of Applied Arts in Vienna. You know, she obviously had a passion for teaching and also it was, you know, it was a paid position and it helped to fund her collections. It was there that she actually first met Andreas. He was one of her students. Um, he said that he remembers going into the room and she was sat on a windowsill and that she looked extraordinary. But then when she started to talk, what she was saying was was even more amazing than how she looked. And Vivian immediately felt that he was incredibly talented. She told me that his talent was off the scale. And she invited him and a group of other students to work on placement at the Westwood studio in preparation for her autumn winter 1990 collection. Now, that collection is, is the collection that's now known as Portrait. Um, it's an incredibly important Vivian Westwood collection. Um, it's probably, if people don't know much about Vivian Westwood, they know things from this collection because it's the first time she did the very high uh, platform shoe. It's the first time she did uh, velvet printed with gold foil um, in a design that was taken from the back of uh, a mirror 
by Andre Charles Boulle that's held in the Wallace Collection, which is a museum in London. And interestingly, that technique was very expensive and her teaching salary actually helped to fund it. That's the, the reason that was possible. And probably the most famous piece from this collection is a corset that's, that's printed with an image of a Boucher painting. And Vivian said to me, actually, that she did this collection. She knew it was great. And she asked people's opinions. And Andreas was the only one that kind of contradicted her and said, oh, I think certain things could be better. So there was some kind of a spark between them at that point. And actually, Andreas carried on working with her. He didn't go back to Austria. He didn't go back to Vienna. And they started to work in partnership after that collection. Vivian presented um, a show, a menswear show in Florence, which was called Cut and Slash. And Andreas designed some women's wear for that menswear collection. And then her next collection, which was called Cut, Slash and Pull, which is for spring 1991. Andreas designed that in partnership with her. She said to me, there are entire sections of that that were Andreas. And not least, Andreas um, encouraged her to drop the hem to the mid-calf, which became, again, became something that was very influential across fashion as a whole and was something that was remarked upon a lot about that collection. And she credits that to him entirely. I think it's so fascinating because in the book, you could almost see in the collections the precise moment when they started working together. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, something about her work comes into sharper focus or there's a certain sort of like heightened purity yeah. in the work um, that that I noted immediately. Well, I think also um, Vivian always enjoyed working in partnership with somebody, you know, and she felt that it enriched her work. She worked in partnership with Malcolm McLaren. Then she was alone for a period of time. And then from 1990, she was working in partnership with, with Andreas. And she said, you know, he would challenge her. He would suggest things that she would never do. It was under his encouragement that she began to push and make kind of larger shapes that, you know, those really grand ball gowns that we really associate with Westwood's work from, from the mid-1990s. And also Andres had this love of, of French haute couture and this kind of European sensibility. And Vivian had that love as well and was interested in European culture. But I think certainly Andreas encouraged that and led her down that way and had um, a perhaps deeper knowledge of kind of 20th century haute couture. Whereas, you know, Vivian was always interested in in the history and in distant history. Uh, whereas and Andreas was very enamored with that kind of post-war couture. And, you know, she said that and Andreas did things like, you know, she he took the corset that she'd made as outerwear and used it as the foundation for those dresses. So there's no way they would have been able to achieve those ball gowns without using the corset as foundation. So it was very much a partnership and things bouncing backwards and forwards. And, you know, there are certain shows where there are sections that, that were designed by Andreas, and there are certain shows where there's, there are sections that are designed by Vivian. And talking with, and I spoke a great deal with Andreas when I was doing the book, and he had an absolutely unbelievable memory. Like we had printouts of every look of the show, and Andreas would talk me through every look of a collection from 25 years ago. Wow. And would explain to me, you know, also, I think also because of his relationship, you know, it, it was very interesting that he said in one particular collection, you know, that, that every outfit had to have a justification. There was, a, there was the idea of a character behind every outfit. And you had to be able to 
to kind of justify it to Vivian, why you were putting that person in that outfit, why that outfit looked the way it did. So for instance, there's a, a collection called Salon and it has a very famous corset with a dog printed on the front of it. And Andrea said the whole idea of that was that it was a starlet and she was at lunch and she had her lap dog in her lap. So you could see the dog on the corset and it had a bow. And, you know, and he was going through and being like, yes, and there's always a nurse and there's always a secretary and there's always, you know, all these characters. And it it was really incredible, his kind of, his total recall of what the outfits were, the reason behind the outfits, um, the, you know, and then you talk to Vivian and she would have the entire process of the design behind the outfit. So it, it was really extraordinary speaking to both of them. And there was actually a really amazing moment where we were kind of going through roughly sequentially from Andreas's first collection. So from, from 1991 onwards. And then I think we got to about 1997 or 1998. And we suddenly realized we hadn't spoken about On Liberty which is a, a Vivian's Autumn Winter 1994 collection. And it's the collection where she first introduces the, the kind of the padded bustle. So this, and there's a, a really kind of extraordinary film about it. It, it. You know, it was a really kind of seminal collection, incredibly important. And we both couldn't believe we'd forgotten this incredibly important collection. And we went back to talk about it. And when we did, just as we started to talk about it, Vivian walked through the door wearing a dress from that collection. Wow. And we were both completely gobsmacked. And Vivian was like, why are you both staring at me like this? <laughs> and we were just completely, we, we were just like, I can't believe we were just talking about this collection and this dress and you're wearing it. It is it is her favorite dress. She has said that a dress from that collection, which is a, a dress that's knitted to look like a Liberty print, but it's three-dimensional knit. Um, she has said on a few different occasions that it's her favorite dress. And that's what she was wearing when she walked through the door. But yeah, we were, we were kind of, gobsmacked. It was one of those very strange moments. I love this so much. Okay, so we've been talking about a lot of constants throughout her work. One of the big main ones, obviously, being her love of fashion history. Another constant in her work that increasingly took center stage as we move into the early 2000s was her activism. And even as a child, Vivian was really interested in challenging the status quo. You cite her in your book saying, I suffered a trauma at the age of four when I saw a calendar of the crucifixion and I became a freedom fighter. I've always wanted to change the world. So starting um, with the 2005 propaganda collection, you also say that her work from now on would be overtly and explicitly shaped by her political, social, and even environmental concerns. So can you walk us through a little bit? Um, Because, you know, many of her political ideologies were fully on view with her work with McLaren in the 1970s, so much so that they got her arrested, I think at least once. But how does she recenter her resistance on the runway in the 2000s? Well, it's actually interesting because I think the resistance was always there. When you look at her work in the kind of 1980s and 1990s, there's this idea of she's kind of a cultural crusader. Westwood titles are always great. She always gave them, you know, the collection's fantastic names. There's a collection from 1988 called Civilizade, which is this idea of a crusade for civilization. And, you know, and I love that. And I think that is is kind of a theme that's there throughout her work, especially at that period in time, you know, and, and it's the idea that looking at those outfits and reading them, like we talked about before, you could read these kind of cultural messages in there. And 
what her, you know, a lot of the time, what her message was about was about how kind of <laughs> terrible modern life was and how great things used to be in history. On Liberty is a really great example that the message of On Liberty, which is really oblique, but really quite fabulous, is the idea that it's, it's a critique of democracy. It's the idea that under democracy, the masses became fat uh, because they were well fed. So slenderness became uh, a symbol of uh, aristocracy, a, a symbol of elitism. And as a criticism of democracy, Vivian padded the silhouette into those kind of voluptuous shapes of the past because she felt that was beautiful, but also countered the kind of horror of modernity. And I think the difference in the 2000s is it became literally written on the garments as opposed to just built into the seams. And what she actually said was that she realized looking back at punk, which she often, you know, again, going through kind of these rhythms of loving and hating certain ideas, you know, she disavowed her punk work in the 1990s because it didn't connect with those ideas of culture that she loved. But when she looked back on it in the 2000s, she realized that it was a very simple and direct way of messaging. She realized the kind of power of a t-shirt with a slogan. And so she re-embraced it because she wanted to get her message out very loud, very clear, very directly. Uh, so that's kind of where that propaganda collection came from, which was printed with, with you know, propaganda, active resistance to propaganda. In terms of the environmental uh, message, you know, there's actually, weirdly, in 1993, in her Grand Hotel collection, there is kind of references to endangered species in that collection. There's a, there's a print of kind of different endangered animals on clothes presented in that show. So I, I think, you know, it, it is something that she was interested in, but certainly it, you know, it, it became a kind of obsession of hers. It became the kind of crusade that she was on towards the end of her life. And I think what she realized, and, and you know, she always felt that fashion was was a tool to convey a message. A lot of, you know, a lot of the time, I feel like she felt the message was more important actually than the fashion. It wasn't so much about whether something looked beautiful. It was what did it have to say? That's why what, what she was producing was so amazing because she wasn't, it wasn't about conventional ideas of attractiveness in this particular moment. It's about, this is the idea that I want to communicate. Um, and obviously that idea can be about lots of different things. And towards the end, it, it, it also became about the idea of the fashion show and herself as a kind of fashion figure, being able to use her influence and her, the soapbox of fashion as a way to talk about things that she feels are more important. And a lot of people, all the way through Westwood's career, a lot of people have felt that her doing that and using different kind of communication methods with her clothes uh, of kind of, I don't know, like overstepping the mark of a fashion designer that, that she's talking about things that she shouldn't be talking about. And she's been ridiculed for it, you know, uh, in, you know, she's been really kind of pilloried in lots of different publications and lots of different countries. But it's interesting, you know, I, I remember speaking quite recently with, with Mutia Prada and she was saying how she feels that she has a duty as a fashion designer with this platform to say something about how things can be changed, to try and affect change 
on a bigger level. And nobody laughs at Mutual Prada. Nobody suggests that that's foolish. You know, so I don't know. I, I feel like with Vivian, a lot of the time, there's a really great phrase that Susie Menkes used, which is cruel, but I think is apt. She said that Vivian was first, but worst. And it meant <laughs> a lot of the time, Vivian had the original idea. Um, Vivian did it before anybody else. But it, a lot of the time, it was in an unrefined way. Um, and she was specifically talking about clothes. And then obviously another fashion designer would seize on the idea, would polish it up, and then would make a lot of money out of it. Um, you know, uh, the kind of the immediate and easiest example, I think, to use of that is the mini crinny, which became the puffball and the poof. And, you know, every designer did it. Oh, it was the, the silhouette of the 80s, right? It's that kind of like bustier bodice dress with like the little poofs, short mini skirt. And that, you know, that was Vivian's, but everybody else did it better than her, but she did it first. Um, and I think maybe there's, there's slightly that in terms of her kind of communication methods. But the thing that was actually very interesting, you know, I, I remember speaking with people early in my career and they would be like, oh, you know, Vivian Westwood is a nightmare. Vivian Westwood is a nightmare to talk to. She wants to talk about this, da, da, da. And I went and in, the first time I interviewed her, it was with some kind of trepidation. And she spoke to me for 20 minutes about her kind of political beliefs and, you know, her environmental concerns at that particular point in time, which were very specific and very detached from fashion. Very interesting. And she, you know, she had a very kind of distinct point of view. And after she'd finished it, it she literally said, OK, now what do you want to talk about? And then let me ask her all these questions about fashion. And I was like, you just need to, you know, she has a message she wants to get across and that's very important for her. And then she was very happy to talk about different things. And I think you, you can see that in her clothes as well in her shows. And she recognized the power of fashion. And, that, you know, that it's really interesting. And she, she was one of the first, I think, to do that. This kind of brings us full circle to the very, very beginning of your book. You say that Westwood's work is narrative and sometimes even didactic. So what do you think that this bigger overarching message was that she was setting out for us to learn from her? And how does that fit into contemporary fashion today? I think Westwood's message changed all the time. But there certainly is a thread of kind of learning from your past, I guess, which is this, you know, and this idea of, of, I guess, maybe just of learning, whether that's, you know, reading about environmental change and adapting your behavior according to that, or examining past stress and learning from that. She spoke about this idea of the kind of dogma of modernity, this idea that, that the message of the 20th century and the 21st century has been that everything is going to get better in the future and therefore the past is of no interest. Um, and I think for her, it, she, she really tubbed thumped the fact that you should be learning from history and that history is kind of alive and is dynamic, and is, is something to be cherished. And, you know, when you think about kind of her environmental concerns, it's very much tied together. There's this idea of kind of 
keeping things alive, really trying to ensure that the world that we're in is going to survive. Um, I think there's this, you know, this idea of the richness of culture. And that's the other thing, you know, she talks a lot about the environment, but there's always this love of, of culture and of history and of art that was always there. That, you know, it's it's not that she jettisoned that and became obsessed with the environment and politics, for her it all um interconnected. You know, in the 1980s, she was going out and protesting the fact that people were closing museums, but also that people were sacking scientists under the kind of conservative government in the UK at that point in time. Um, there's always been this interest across kind of different areas of culture. But I think overall, you know, it, it is that kind of school teacher thing. She wants people to be able to learn. Uh, and and she wants people to kind of better themselves. I think that's something that that's always there in in Westwood's work. Well, and of course, her prodigious contributions to British culture were recognized by the Queen in 1992, and then again in 2006. I know we're on a little bit of a time crunch here. We we have to sign off quite quickly. But do you just want to speak very very briefly on what these honors? meant to Vivian personally, and perhaps if you have any thoughts on what it means to have fashion officially recognized in such a way by the government. When Vivian got her OBE in 1992, there was a lot of controversy because she had helped mastermind the Sex Pistols and God Save the Queen. She'd impaled the Queen's face on a safety pin, on a seditionary's t-shirt. And Vivian herself kind of quoted that Socrates drank a cup of poison because it was the consensus that he should, which is why she accepted the honour, because a lot of people thought she would refuse it. But, you know, she she always had that kind of, I think by that point in time, there was a kind of love for the establishment. You know, there actually, you know, she'd based a collection around the royal family. There was this idea. It certainly wasn't, she didn't have the kind of anti-establishment agitation that she'd had in the in the 1970s. You know, when you think about it and think about that background, less than kind of, you know, less than 20 years after she'd impaled the Queen's face on a safety pin, she was being given an OBE. It is really extraordinary. And it it is considering the fact that, you know, at that point, Vivian was still avant-garde. You know, Uh I think now she is, you know, her clothes are part of the fashion establishment and they're held in museums and... But at that point in time, I think she was still perceived as kind of quite an underground designer. There was still this sense that, um, you know, when John Fairchild said she was one of the six most important designers in the world, you know, he prefaced that saying she was the designer's designer and she was the only truly inventive dress designer who wasn't a multimillionaire. You know, I so I think for her to be recognized at that point in time when she'd only actually just started to be recognized by the fashion industry, you know, she'd only just started to win things like designer of the year having created work that was so incredibly influential for such a long period of time, she'd only just started to be embraced and photographed in vogue. And, you know, given her kind of her dues by the fashion industry, I I think it was quite extraordinary. And I honestly, I still think there is a very weird amnesia around Vivian Westwood. I think, you know, we see these kind of enormous 
she did have the the Victorian Albert Museum retrospective, but we've seen these kind of enormous retrospectives devoted to other designers, many of whom owe an enormous debt to Vivian for their work. You see books and magazine articles and documentaries about how fashion was shaped in certain decades, and Vivian Westwood isn't mentioned. You know, I think it's it's really extraordinary because for me, alongside Chanel and Yves Saint Laurent, she is the most important designer of the 20th century. You know, and I don't think that's a grand statement. And without Vivian Westwood, we wouldn't have John Galliano. We wouldn't have had Lee Alexander McQueen. Um, you know, we wouldn't have had the fashion of the last half century. All been shaped by her. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and, and you know, and then when you add, and that's talking about what she's done on the catwalk. And then when you add in punk and punk's influence, it's, you know, it reshaped culture. You know, it, it's reshaped the way film posters look, the way television graphics are, you know, the way computers are designed. It's, it's so much, that, that movement was so kind of cataclysmic and so important. And she was such an integral component of it. It's, it's really extraordinary that she doesn't get kind of greater recognition. And I wonder if she will now, I wonder if sadly it's something that kind of has to be posthumous. You know, when you think of someone like Charles James, who wasn't appreciated in his lifetime and is now revered, when you think of Paul Poiret, who, you know, died in poverty. Um, and I feel like Westwood was, you know, at least hurrahed during her lifetime. But I wonder if now is is when she's going to really be given her dues and when people are really going to kind of take her seriously to the degree that she should be taken as one of the kind of great architects, not of fashion, but actually of the way we dress. And, you know, that's what I think is is kind of so extraordinary. It's one of the things that really hit me when I was doing this book. I was like, she did everything. She did everything before everybody else. And it's, you know, and you would turn a page and see something that someone's ripped off. And it, it was it really gobsmacking. And I loved writing the book. And there's a lot of words in the book. But if you just go through and look at the pictures, it's you know that she's kind of probably the greatest designer of our time. And I don't think that's an overstatement at all. Alexander, thank you so much for sharing your obvious passion and your insights on Vivian's life and career with us all. You know, her influence, her impact, her intellectualism, her innovations in fashion really transcend that of a good or maybe even great designer. Like you just said, she was, is, and forever shall remain an icon. I absolutely agree. And thank you so much. If our listeners would like to keep learning from you, where can they find you and or read more of your work? I am on Instagram, which is my social media of choice, uh, where I do occasionally do videos of me talking about Vivian Westwood garments and other garments by other people. And my Instagram is just at Alexander Fury. Um, I also write for the Financial Times in London and for another magazine. This has been a supreme delight. Thank you again for fast tracking this episode with us. And uh, we can't wait to hear what your next book might be. Thank you very much. 
Alexander, our deep appreciation for your insights and understanding of the language that Westwood created in her work across five decades. Thank you so much for being with us. And, you know, Westwood's legacy is, of course, being carried on by her husband, Andreas Krontaler, who has been Vivian's collaborator since the early 1990s. And while his name didn't appear on the Westwood label until 2016, he has been a pillar of the brand for decades, whether consumers happen to know that or not. Yeah. And Cass, I just want to say that one thing I wish Alex and I had a little more time to explore during our interview. Um, We both had other time commitments that were coming up quickly that day. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit more was the latter portion of their work together when they began to explore fashion activism more deeply in their collections of 2005 and, and moving forward. And as Alex writes in his really wonderful book, he says, quote, In the mid-2000s, Westwood shifted her obsessions to activism, political and ecological, using her designs as pamphlet sets for her deep-seated beliefs and returning to the notion of sloganeering that she had first explored during punk. And I just want to say that while mass production of fashion may seem at odds with her kind of diehard echo activism, it is something that she addressed head-on, and she really implored consumers to buy better, and buy less, even if it was to the detriment of her own financial bottom line. Yeah, fashion was never a cash grab for Vivian. She saw her clothes as a mouthpiece, a canvas for her broader message. And Alexander succinctly sums this up in his book when he writes, Westwood's legacy was to fragment the industry, to challenge the hegemony of high fashion as an aristocracy of money, and rather to make it a meritocracy where ideas are the currency, a place where penniless yet innovative designers could be championed and propelled to greatness, end quote. And in the process, Vivian herself became one of fashion history's greats. We may have lost Vivian the human, but we haven't lost Vivian the creator. Now her deep interest in fashion history simply makes a transition of her own work becoming part of fashion's incredible past. So thank you, Dame Viv, For the last five decades of playful provocation, you live on in our closets, past, present, and future. Listeners, if you would like to immerse yourself in Westwood's world, you can also do so by picking up a copy of Alexander's book, which we have mentioned is entitled Vivian Westwood Catwalk. It is an incredible 600-plus page record of her work spanning four decades, and we can't recommend it enough. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider how legacy resides in your closet next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, please do so via email at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. And if you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. As we also appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is the production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.